whatever you build, whatever you do, you've got to leave it in a better place. If you've done that and you feel comfortable, then you as a person have to graduate. Today, we are honored and grateful to have Bob Wu on the pod. Bob is currently running his own venture capital fund called Vermilion Ventures. It's funded by Asian Americans and also invests only in Asian American founders. Prior to that, Bob co-founded Teleport, a startup that was leveraging Uber's API to allow any person or business to send Uber rides to anyone at scale. One of the topics we'll definitely get in today is community. Bob is the co-founder and former president of Taiwanese American Professionals. He's also the former president of Taiwanese American Citizens League, and he's also held nonprofit board positions with Amigos de las Americas and the Council of Urban Professionals. So Bob, when we first met in Honolulu, when I was hosting a Mexican-Asian fusion dinner, and then talking to you over breakfast last week on Kauai, it's clear to me that you've got this fiery passion in you. There's this phrase, I couldn't find who first said it, but it's strong opinions weekly held. And although we don't agree on everything, you're definitely someone with strong opinions strongly held, which I think is a good thing. In today's society, it feels like it's really easy to not care or just be like a keyboard warrior typing clickbait behind a screen. And you're someone that says a lot of things and you also have a track record of following through. So to start off, I'd love to hear about your childhood growing up in Houston and also how you developed this fiery sense of passion. Wow, that's a lot of, well, th- well first, thank you, Aid. Thank you, Matt, for having me on this podcast. I'm super excited Pleasure. to be here. Obviously, it's fun to have breakfast in Kauai. So uh, definitely come back. Anyone that's watching and listening would love to host you in Kauai. But um, there's really two questions. One is the childhood part growing up. And then the second is how do I come up with the sort of the, the passion part? And I'm not sure they're connected in a lot of ways because, well, let me go through my childhood and then we'll, we'll take a sort of meandering path to talk about how I, I developed my passion for the community and sort of being outspoken. I grew up in Houston, Texas, born and raised, went to school there, loved it. Uh, my parents are still there. People always ask like, are you from Houston, Houston? I'm inside the sort of the Beltway 8 and I'm a big fan of the Houston Rockets, Houston Texans, Houston Astros, all the Houston teams. If you don't support your own teams, who will? But yeah, my parents, my dad immigrated to the United States in order to go to school at a place called Texas A&I, which became Texas A&M. And he actually was doing his master's or he finished his master's in kinesiology, sports, sort of sports science. And then from there, he was doing his PhD when he actually had my sister and he basically had to make money. So he had his parents send him like Kung Fu uniforms because Bruce Lee was cool in the eighties and he sold them at a flea market. And basically he just made money that way because when you're a sports science major, there's not a lot of positions for Asian Americans in the eighties. Now, if you're in computer science, that probably would have been a different story. If you're an engineer, different story, but he was in sports science. So not exactly a sort of traditional pathway and I'll tell you a funny story. My name is actually Bob. And a lot of people ask me like, why is it Bob? How did you get that name? And my dad, he didn't have a lot of money coming to the United States. He stayed with a, a really nice family in a, in a town called Galveston, which is a small island town community in Texas. 
they're white and they didn't have any children and their names were Bob and Mary. And so they asked my parents, they said, Hey, if you ever have children, can you name it after us? And that's kind of strange. If I say, Hey, Abe, you barely know me, but when you have children, name them after me. And you'd be like, what WTF? But my parents, they didn't speak English that well. They didn't know what the right names were. So they said, sure, we'll <laughs> name them our children after you. So my sister's name is actually Mary Teresa Wu. And my name is Bob Wu. And I'm sure what happened was I was born and the nurse probably said, what would you like to name your son? And my mom probably said, Bob. And the nurse probably said, are you sure it's not Robert? And she probably <laughs> said, no, it's Bob. And, and so it's actually a real story where my name is actually Bob on my birth certificate. But yeah, so he started doing sort of flea market and eventually he became, he started doing pins. So this is the things that you see on the president, the flags on hats. This is what Stanley asked me to help him find when he goes to a different country, the U S flag in Japan or U S flag in Australia, things like that. So my dad became the largest wholesaler in the South for pins and hat tax and flags, which is really interesting because I used to work in the sort of factory in the warehouse and he would actually have Confederate flag that he would be selling. Wow. So what was hilarious was these places that wanted Confederate flags didn't know they were buying from an Asian American, <laughs> but, and they were supplied obviously from Taiwan and China. So even better. So anyways, I grew up there, went to school uh, and this is important because I guess my dad was that origin story, I think is very important to figure out. And, when, and whenever I do interviews with other people, it's so important to hear those stories of the immigration story, because it's fundamentally is the background for our childhood. Yeah. And so when you talk about being an entrepreneur, starting a business, a lot of that comes from what our parents did and they had to do in a lot of ways. So I picked up a lot of that, but from there, I went to school at USC and studied international relations. And before I graduated, I spent one semester in Shanghai and I was working there as well. So after I graduated, I stayed in Shanghai for another basically year and a half. And I was working for a consulting firm, helping companies in China get onto the market. And these were pre IPO technology companies, but the way that they were doing it was very backwards. What they were doing is they were taking shell companies in China and changing it, getting it on the market because they're basically SPACs. All these companies did really well. And then they all fell just like the ones in the U S so it's nothing new. I was sort of helping these companies structure themselves to IPO from there. I had a conversation with my dad. He said, if you're really going to do finance, you've got to go to the capital finance. And he said, you've got to end up in New York. So I went to New York. I didn't actually have a job. I didn't have, I didn't know anything. I just knew that I had to be there. So I started applying, started reaching out to my network and I got completely lucky. One of my friends had happened to know a recruiter. His name was Adam Connors. And he said, Hey Bob, okay. You came through a friend. Let me help you out. He put me in touch with a family office and the family office. There's a whole story behind that. And we can go into detail there, but I, I got really lucky because during that time, no one wanted to work for a family office. Everyone wanted to be an investment banker. Everyone wanted to be a consultant. I could not get a job period because I was working in China and that Chinese experience was not worth anything. I wasn't a new hire as well. So it was really difficult to get a job in New York. So I was struggling and there's a family office opportunity. 
I was very lucky. I got it. And this was 2006, 2007. Well, the financial crisis happened. Everyone lost their jobs that were in consulting and investment banking. But because I worked for a family office, it was long-term capital. Everyone was like, dude, you got the best job ever. You're so lucky, Bob. There's that old Chinese sort of tale of a, a guy that everyone in the village says he's lucky or is he not? And you can't really think about it that way. But the story is his son breaks a leg. They're like, oh, you're, you're, you're a sucker. Your son's leg is broken. What bad fortune. And then someone comes in the village and says, hey, all firstborn sons must go to war. And then everyone's like, hey, your son's so lucky he has broken leg, he can't go to war. And it keeps on going until basically, is it luck? Is it, you can't look at it like that. But I, I got really lucky and ended up in Ziff Brothers Investments for seven years. And so they made a great hire. But I love my experience because I got to see finance in all the different ways. So public equities, private equity, commodities, fixed income, venture capital, hedge fund, the whole night, fund of funds. I got to work for one of the largest family offices in New York. And they had, according to Forbes, over $14 billion, blah, blah, blah. And they invested in all the top managers during that time period. And so I got a front row seat to how to invest and how to think about investing in general. Do you have any questions starting from there? Wow, this, this is, is so much. I, Bob, I want to take us back to the beginning and then work our way to the present day again. And I know that you are currently such an advocate of Asian Americans in professional in, in creative careers. I'm curious, like what you felt growing up as sort of a minority in Texas, like was there a part of you that was as proud to be Asian American back then? Or what did you feel more, I guess, alienated at that point being sort of the a, a very small minority over there? That's a great question. I will say that this is a great sort of episode to have after talking to Stanley, because Stanley and I have this conversation a lot, which is he says that Asian Americans born in the mainland or in the continental US have a chip on their shoulder because they were minorities. So I was a little offended by this. And I told Matt this as well, that I felt like, hey, like, why are you talking about us mainland Asian Americans? And but the more I thought about it, the more I realized what he said had a bit of truth, which was he grew up in Hawaii and there's Asian Americans everywhere in leadership positions. You're talking about CEOs, you're talking about mayors, you're talking about the governor, you're talking about every single position you see Asian Americans. So you believe that Asian Americans are smart and they're capable. But in the mainland US, that's just not true. You don't see that many leaders in your community. And so you do have a chip on your shoulder, right? Which is, and you do have a thing in the back of your mind because people have also told you that you're not good enough. People have told you there's, there's still racism. And you see that with Stop Asian Hate. But even when I was growing up, people would say there were times when you'd play spin the bottle, right? But you could not be a part of it because you know why you're Asian. And that's like what that has nothing to do with it at zero. But you would be excluded from a lot of things. And so how does that make you feel right? That makes you feel like, hey, I've got to prove myself day in and day out in order to show that I am capable. And so I think it, it is a very different mentality. And to your point, growing up in the South, growing, growing up in Houston, it was, I'll be honest, it wasn't sort of easy, but you can take 
pressure, you can take negativity in a lot of different ways. You can either let it push you down or you can take it and use it to fuel your drive. And I think what I did was just kept it in the back of my mind, but used it to say, look, I'm going to prove everyone wrong. I'm going to prove everyone wrong that Asian Americans can do everything that everyone else can do. And I'll give you an example. I went to this camp that was 100% Caucasian in the middle of Texas. It's called Camp Fern in Marshall, Texas. It's like the most Texas name ever, Marshall, Texas. And there are no minorities or 500 mile radius. My dad sent me to the camp because it was great. They have great programs and I love my experience there. But their expectations for an Asian American were to be the geek, to be weak, to not be able to stand up for themselves, right? And so every day I had to show them that Asian Americans could be just as athletic as everyone else there, that I would not back down from a fight, that I would stand up for myself. And I would go and they had boxing matches between kids, right? Literally boxing matches that I would not be afraid to go stand in the ring and fight whoever wanted to fight me. Right. And like I had that chip on my shoulder and I wonder if it's, it could be a positive and negative here. Right. Which is like, it's still like you, you keep on going and you don't know when to succeed, even if you've already succeeded. So like it can be a negative mental health issue because you're yeah. scared that you, you've never achieved success. At the same time, you're not, you're never sort of slowing down. So uh, I don't know if that answers your question about growing up, but that was in the back of my mind. But when I got to college, actually, I went to LA, USC in LA, and there's a lot of Asians there. So it was very surprising, different experience. And I can tell you that if you grow up with a lot of Asians, you're actually probably less active in the Asian American community, which is counterintuitive. But let me explain it because you see Asians all the time. You don't feel the need to go out of your way to support Asians. You, you see Asians all the time that it doesn't become a priority because they're, they don't need the support. Does that make sense? So that you're less sense. likely to be involved or to be actively involved because you already have Asian friends. Yeah, I felt that way, Bob. I, I actually grew up in Minnesota, so very similar to Texas. I was like the only Asian kid in my elementary school. And I remember like at some point, it switched from being like, uh, ashamed of bringing like Chinese food for lunch and like wanting to prefer Lunchables and like a PB&J to suddenly like I hit high school and I was like, why would I eat a PB&J when like this food is just so much better on the other side? And so I think it's like a flick of a switch between what are you looking for externally? And once you could find that internally, that it was all very different. And then I went to Berkeley and I was like, I totally forgot about like being Asian was a thing because there are even more so than UC, USC was, was a, a whole slew of Asians. And I was like, never seen anything like that before. And I think what was key for me was I ne never seen Americanized Asians before. And my family, friends and my parents, they were all immigrants. And then I go to San Jose and they're all like me, but older. And that was a, that was an eye opening experience. Yeah. I remember the first time I saw an older Asian person speak fluent English. I did a double take. I like some random stranger, maybe it was like public place, grocery store. I like trailed them a bit just to, just to try and hear them talk a second time. Cause I was like, whoa, I was, I was used to only hearing accents growing up in Virginia. So there was a couple things that stood out to me on your change Shanghai to New York, but I th found it very surprising that you one just like listen to your dad. He's like, go to New York and you're like, okay. But then also the fact that you 
are down to just go there without a job lined up. Like I can understand a lot more now that I quit my job and I'm about to go live in New York in July and hopefully later in the year. But at the time, being that young, like what, didn't that feel like a crazy decision to you or did it feel like your destiny or like something that you just had to do? That's a great question. I have no sacred cows. There is nothing that I'm willing to blow shit up. And, and this is really important okay. because I think that you always have to be willing to make big change. You have to be willing to think ambitiously. I told you this when I moved from New York to Kauai, many of my friends said like, what are you doing? Are you crazy? You're not only moving from you know, the East Coast, but you're moving to, you're not even moving to Honolulu, you're moving to like the most country out of all the islands. And people thought I was nuts. Like, I think most of my friends just couldn't do it, right? Because you get used to a certain type of lifestyle and to move from the US to China, to be working and then from Shanghai, moving to New York without a job, it's, it's insane. I think I have a certain belief in my ability to figure things out. So I'm not really worried about failure. I will figure it out. No matter how bad it gets, I will figure it out. And even if I did all these job interviews, I didn't get them in New York, I will figure it out. And it actually took a while before I actually I had to, I actually had to, so I did interviews in New York. I didn't know, no one hired me. So I had to move back to Houston for like a couple months before I heard back that I got the job because it's a process. It's not like you go in for an interview, they hire you the next week. And so you have to just be willing, you have to have a, I think people ask me like, so, so what is your superpower? I think my superpower is really long-term patience. I have a well of patience. I will wait you out. And I, I, I'm willing to wait because I know that if you do the right thing, you put in the work, it's very hard to compete with if you have like all those three things, right? And so I just have, maybe it's, it's what Steve job, the, the sort of, what does he call it? Basically the, you're just, you're just in your own head and you just make up stuff. Maybe I just make up the fact that I'll, I'll be fine, but I, I, yeah, I moved there, didn't have a job, didn't know if I would have a job, but I, I, I listened to my dad primarily because he was right. If I wanted to do finance and finance was really hot back in the day, everything we do is really fashionable. So if, if you had asked me in 2020, when I was just coming out of college or I was ready for my next jump, what would be the hottest thing? No one would say finance. No one. It would be maybe big tech, maybe join a startup, maybe um, be a PM. That would be the hot, the hotness. But none of your friends, none of your parents would go into finance. But in 2005, 2006, that was the hotness. It was like, you've got to do finance. And I'm not going to pretend to say like, I knew I was like Stanley, I knew exactly what I wanted to do when I was younger. I'm not that person. I didn't know what I wanted. I was still trying to figure it out, but I was like, Hey, if the smartest people are trying to go into finance and finance is where it's at, let's go, let's go do that. Let's go jump in the fray. And so that's, that's sort of how I made the decision. I mean, when you're younger, you really shouldn't be held back by anything. You have nothing you've accomplished zero. So you should be willing to sacrifice whatever you have for a better opportunity. Yeah, when you're younger. Me, it's clear to me, Bob, that you have this like can do attitude. We've seen this in some of our guests as well. 
And I think it pairs naturally with its ability to like walk the fine line between failure and success. So I'm curious if you could share a little bit of your mentality around being not just okay with failure, but like almost embracing it in some ways and how that's led you to where you are. So I have a four-year-old daughter. Her name is Ailani and she gets frustrated a lot. She's four. It's understandable. And we talk about failure all the time with her. And a lot of times I ask her, Hey, let's try this new thing. Do you want to try it? And she says, no, which is really strange. And you have to think about what is the mental model that she's thinking about in order to say no to trying a new thing. And when you dive deeper into why it's because she doesn't want to fail. She wants to do things to get applauded and for people to say nice things to her. And so she does things she already is, has mastered and she doesn't want to do new things. I think that mental model sticks with the sticks with us throughout our lives. We don't want to do things that we fail at. So we don't try new things, but we don't do things that we know that we're going to suck at, which is really strange because the only way to really learn is to fail at things. You've got to fail at things in order to learn. And no one is good at anything. No one has mastered, even if they're good at it, no one has mastered it overnight. You still have to work at it. And there will always be someone better than you. So even for my daughter, I, I see like the issues that I have when I need to challenge myself. I need to do things that I suck at, even if it's embarrassing. And the whole thing is she has nothing to lose. She's only four. She should be willing to take on the most risk but she's the most scared because she doesn't want to lose our praise. And so I think even at my age, like I have more to lose, but if someone you talk to that's 80, they would look at me and say, you have nothing to lose. You're only 40, right? You should be willing to take risks right now. You should be willing to put yourself out there and fail and be embarrassed because you have so much time to recover. You have so much time to build on that knowledge. And I think you sort of have to remember that in a lot of ways that Failure is okay. Failure is not meaning that you fucked for the rest of your life. And uh, failure doesn't mean that it is a hallmark of who you are as a person. I think there, there's stereotypes out there, right? There, there are stereotypes in startups and VCs who say, look, if you've succeeded at everything you've done in life, you'll probably succeed at this next startup. So I'm going to back you because all you've done in life is succeed, right? Which is a really good idea because all they do is succeed. But the reality is probably not as obvious. They probably had so many failures in between that you couldn't see it and they don't tell you those. But essentially you've got to fail a lot if you're going to do new things. You've got to fail a lot in order to make real change. You've got to fail a lot in order to learn, right? And then when I started Tap New York, I, I made one big mistake early on. I was like, okay, let's get t-shirts for everyone, right? Let's get t-shirts. And I was like, okay, I'm going to go ahead and like loan the comp the organization like two thousand dollars to print t-shirts to get enough we're going to sell out we're going to you know this price point i know business and we sold like three t-shirts so i was left with literally like a thousand seven hundred dollars worth of t-shirts and i was like i totally misjudged the entire thing people don't want my t-shirts there's not enough customers and there's not enough people that really care right so i learned a lesson but I could have, and then there weren't a lot of people that came to my events. So I could have just stopped right then. Right. I failed so badly. Like, it's just, just like plant, like face plant. Right. So I should have been like, okay, let's just stop. But you just have to have a belief, right? You have to have the patience and you've got to sort of not, not even have the belief, but the conviction 
that what you're doing is important and that it's worth doing and just to keep and so to, to what you guys said right you're not you guys are doing this because you're just putting one foot in front of the other let's just keep on going let's see how many episodes we can do and to have that patience sometimes just to like put the blinders on actually makes you more successful because you're not worried about all the things that could or may happen to you that pretty much scare most people so if if you view life as like willing to embrace failure and you run headfirst at all these things, you said you're willing to blow shit up. How do you think about when is the right time to kind of end one chapter and transition to the next? Like you've done a lot of different things, different types of jobs, different roles. You've lived in different places. I read this book recently, Quit by Annie Duke. One of the takeaways was like, when you think it's too early to quit might be the time it's the right time to quit. And then when you think it's the right time to quit, it might be too late. She gave this example, like this decision psychologist, like this person that studies decision-making went on this hike with his buddy. It got foggy. They should have turned around. They just kept hiking and then they both died. And so how do you think about like quitting and taking the L or taking the failure, taking the lesson, learning from it, and then starting that next chapter? So it's, it's less, I think the way you're framing it probably is not the way I would frame it. Uh, there's two pieces to this and it goes back to our conversation about community whatever you build whatever you do you've got to leave it in a better place if you've done that and you feel comfortable then you as a person have to graduate and so it's not about like oh is there a sign that i should leave no it's not a sign it's basically like you could work on something it could be a your life's work that you're doing because you have not gotten it to a place where it can be sustainable so it's a question of what is your end goal and sometimes it's not very clear early on but you you want to i'm a big proponent of doing something that you care about for all of your life and it could be broken down into many pieces right and so it looks like massive change when you look at like sort of location or the the job day to day but in the totality of it, you're like, oh, it's all interconnected. And it's very obvious sort of why they're all connected. And this goes back to sort of Steve Jobs' graduation speech. Only backwards can you sort of see how everything is connected. But mm -hmm. initially going forward, it's not very obvious, right? And so this is sort of, it's less quitting something and moving on to something. So one of the things I've learned in Kauai, which I really care about, is this idea of continuity and community. Because we're in an age right now where people actually move locations and they move jobs fairly easily, to your point, Matt. The question is, is who is building roots in order to build something significant in, a, in one place? If everyone in our generation is so mobile, then our communities will be destroyed because everyone is just moving around a lot and not actually settling down to build something, right? And I don't think people realize that is, this, that is the, the, the sacrifice and the negative part of being mobile, right? Having the ability to communicate with people from far distances is great, but what happens? You forget about the people close to you. And I think about this a lot in New York. Talk to any of your friends in New York, right? They live in a high rise. How many times have they ate with their neighbors? 
like probably zero. They don't even know who the neighbors are. They yeah. don't even know the neighbors. And they've probably lived there for four years. That is crazy, right? When you think about it in a really like normal sense, like you've lived next to someone for such a long period of time. They probably are in the same income bracket as you. They probably have the same values as you since you live in the same neighborhood. You probably see them every day, yet you've never sat down with them to have a meal. There's no reason for that. It is so obvious that we are losing sort of the fundamental part of being human and sort of being together with people around us and relying on the people around us in a lot of ways to support each other. So when you think about community, it, there's lots of different ways to go about it. But going back to sort of your original question of like sort of the, the pieces, I, I've actually recognized this recently and sort of you want to do something, you want to have a community that you want to invest in for a very long term. And for everyone, that could be a different community. It yeah. could be geography based, it could be demographic based, it could be company based, right? Whatever it is, you, you want to root yourself in something because that is in order to have patience, you've got to be building on something for a very long time and, and for it to be worth it for there to be a payout. If you break, if you quit constantly in from your community, then the question becomes, you're not gonna be able to build anything really strong because you haven't given enough time. So it's a way to say like, in every place that I'm even in New York, where I live for 12 years. And the reason why I'm able to sort of move on is because I've been able to build a community, I've been able to put leaders in there and made it sustainable. So when I started top New York, that was 2009. And I remember that because Everyone patted me on the back after the first two years, like, Bob, it's so big. You're doing so good. And I was like, Dude, if it's not, if it doesn't last for 10 years, it's not even worth my time. If it doesn't even last 10 years, it's not worth my time. Right. And so I needed to get it to a point where one, we never had financial issues where the t-shirt sold. No one ever had to worry about it. We had to be in a place where people wanted to join the organization and people wanted to come to the events. And so until that happened, you, you shouldn't feel comfortable, right? You shouldn't feel comfortable moving on. So when you ask me like, when do you know it's the right time to move on? It's when you feel like you've done a good job making sure that something is sustainable, that even without your involvement, it can continue going forward. I think that's when you can feel comfortable with anything, right? Whether you, whether you move on from life or you move on from a different city, whatever it is, you wanna leave it in a better place than when you first got there. But you want to like make it sure that you left a mark that makes sure that it's it's, it's going to be there for the end of time. So that that's I mean, you're asking me like so how did I know when I moved from Shanghai to New York? That probably is less of the part of the equation. That's more of the sort of you don't know what you don't know, right? Mm -hmm. And I think I could have easily stayed in China, and I don't know if I would have been successful, but. I'm hoping I would have been, so you can probably tell, but it's a hard question, but yeah, for someone like you, or even for people that are watching this and listening to this, when you want to think about change, there are no sacred cows. You should be willing to move. Even if you have something dug deep, if there are something that you want to do, that is part of your greater mission. Got it. Yeah. Bob, it sounds like proximity and community are just such important concepts to you. 
I'm sure you found like an amazing community out there in Hawaii. I'm curious though, like for your job at Vermilion Ventures and your your companies that you're investing in, your LPs, I imagine most of them are probably on the mainland. So how do you make sure you're connecting and, and staying close to those folks as you're building your personal community on, on that island? It's a hard question, to be honest. It's a really hard question. I, I So one of the things I do is I host events and I host events in New York, San Francisco, LA, where I bring our LPs and our portfolio companies together in the same room. And it seems obvious, but it's not. It seems obvious, but it's not because it's finding the right people that have the same values and putting in the same room is really, really hard. So Abe, where are you right now? I'm in New York City, Manhattan. Okay. So you've probably been to a lot of events in the last year, right? So many events in New York. And I would say that 95% of those events are forgettable. And what I mean by that, like, it might be fun, but if I asked you, hey, what are the, the funnest events that you've done in the last sort of week? You probably like maybe mention one, but then if I ask you a month later, hey, tell me the funnest events that you've had in the last two months, that will not be the same event. And the reason is we're just, you're so busy going to these events, but most of them are not going to change your life. Yeah. So when I host events, I always tell people, all I want you to do today is out of this small group of people, if you can meet one new best friend, it will have been worth it. Right? How hard is it to meet one new best friend? It is so hard. That's actually what I've been trying to do, Bob. There's been so many instances where you meet so many people, especially in a place like New York City. I changed my mindset literally the last time I went to an event like this. I told Matt it was actually because I'm invested in a VC fund and they put together LPs and they put which together one? Which one? companies. AVCF. Which... Okay. Yeah, Alan Rutledge. He he's a one man one man fund. But I went into this one thinking. I will schedule one coffee chat with one person that I actually want to get to know versus in the past, it's always been like, how do I meet as many people as I can? And like the value of that is like minimal, but the value of one more coffee chat, you can go deeper and get to understand somebody in a conversation much like this one is going to be much better. So I'm actually going to go walk around Central Park with somebody this Sunday. So I've really just, actually you've just touched on like a new realization that I'm trying to test out in the city, which is how do I speak to one person, maybe two out of an event of 30? It's exactly it. And so part of the host, the host's job is to actually do that. How do I create those experiences within a small group, right? But the other thing is you don't want to just go to an event and have that ment mental mindset, which is, okay, I'm going to like just one person, like if they're not a good fit for you, it doesn't really matter. If it's just like, look, Abe, I know you're interested in me, but I, I don't swing that way. There's nothing you can do. Right. So if you go to an event and you're like, Hey Bob, I want to see you. And I'm like, well, I'm not that interested. There's nothing you can do. Right. It's just not a good vibe. So you've got to find people that are all doing the same things and rowing the boat in the same direction that just haven't been able to meet. Right. This is key. It's obvious connections that should have been made. And when it's obvious, Abe, you're just like, Bob, let's go get drinks after this event. Cause we need to, we need to continue talking. Right. So it's less formal and it's more natural. And so that's sort of what I try to do, which is I try to put events where when people come, I was like, look, you just need to find one person that you're going to be best friends with. And if that happens, 
like I'm going to be so excited and ecstatic, but you're going to find more value in coming to all my other events because the next event you come to, you'll know that you'll find someone else that you're going to really fall in love with in a way. And you're going to be new best friends, or you're going to do a deal together, or you're going to like start a company together, whatever the reasons are. I want every event that you go to of mine to feel like super curated, super high value. And that you will, I think as you get older in life, you'll realize it's really hard to make new friends. You have family, you have your existing friends and you have other obligations. So you actually don't have time and space and an open heart for new people. And so the bar is so high for someone to come into your life and say, Hey, I can make your life better, or we can actually 10 X each other's lives. The bar is actually really high. And so when you can do that, then it gets really interesting. So I try to host those events. And one of the other things I'm it's on the agenda is I want to do a sun Valley for Asian Americans. So really an entire conference for Asian Americans at the highest levels where they can get together, hopefully in Hawaii and have those sort of the, the water cooler chat and get to know each other in a less formal setting. How do you bring that about? I think it's a, a lot of the responsibility of the host to curate the right group, but then it's sort of also on you to make sure that the conversation, the atmosphere, even the activities lend itself to, to meeting someone on a deeper level. So yeah, how do you, how have you found success in that? I mean, my background member, I started Tap New York. We hosted currently Tap New York in, in, in New York hosts hundred events annually, hundred events. Damn. So when I was doing it, I hosted so many events. And we've done everything from five person events to 400 person events and everything in between. So event planning is sort of in my DNA at this point, but to your question of how do you create a a good experience? The first part is it's actually, it doesn't really matter what you do, Abe. Literally, if I have a dark room, literally a windowless room and there are no activities, but I put you there, I put Matt there, I put Stanley there, I put four other interesting people. Guess what's going to happen? What, what do you think will happen in this windowless room? It'll be a good time. It'll be a great effing time, right? <laughs> and that's just the reality. It's all about the people. If you get the right people there, it doesn't matter what the activity is. Now, there are things in life. I have two things that I like to usually think about when you when you want to create a relationship very quickly, you can either do it over consistency over time. So if I see you like four times in the next month, Abe, like all of a sudden you're like, Hey, I'm going to see Bob a lot. So we probably should be friends. The other way is if we do something dramatic together, like if we're in a car crash together, you can be like, dude, Bob, remember the time when we were about to die? I'm like, yes, Abe, I do remember that time. And that is like a visceral moment where we will share forever. And so if you can create these high impact moments, hopefully not w- without death, <laughs> not literally impact. Yeah. You, you can actually like supercharge the relationship faster. Bob, you, you're, you seem like you're in an interesting position in your life and your career because you're very well connected to a lot of people and you're connected to different types of people. So you're connected to successful, Asian American LPs that have a lot of money, might be older in life. And then you're also talking every day to founders. 
And most founders are not rich and successful. They're like first time founders. They have a chip on their shoulder. They have a lot to prove. So you get like this, these, these different types of people. And I'm wondering when you bring all of these people together, what do you think those older, successful, rich people are looking to gain from those conversations? Are they just purely altruists looking to give back? Or do you feel like there's something that they show up for that they genuinely get value out of from, from the other people? That's a, that's, a, that's a great question. And this is great for founders because they need to go in with more confidence. And to your point, you're like, oh, these wealthy, successful people. Oh, no, like I'm not worthy. Right. You, you can't think of it like that. You have to go in with the confidence mm -hmm. because most people that are actually really successful, they're looking for their next big thing. They want to stay relevant. And sometimes they don't want to do the work because they have family, they have all these other obligations. So they want to advise, they want to mentor, and they want to be involved in something that's going to be relevant. So for them, when they come to these events, they want to hear about the crazy thing that you're working on. That's brilliant. And they want to know, they want to be involved somehow. So at our events, when people talk about their companies, they're actually like very engaged, trying to like, Outside of being investors through the fund, I always recommend to our LPs like, hey, if you want to be an advisor, if you want to take a board seat, you should think about it. But you've got to build that relationship with those founders. And so even if you're successful and you have a lot of money, what are you going to do when you get up the next day? What are you going to do? You still have to do something right. And the, the, the key here is like you should do the things that you want to do that you're really excited about. And so talking to founders who have stuck out their neck, put their own money on the line and really believe in this idea and have been building it, it's really exciting. I guess we're getting to the topic of VC and now your fund Vermilion Ventures. I'd love to hear a bit more about how you think about sourcing, not just the uh, portfolio companies and the founders, but also I've heard that you have a pretty curated LP group as well. So tell me about your, your philosophy when it comes to the fund. So sourcing, I mean, this is, this is, we're going to go into the, the weeds here and, and I have interns that work with me and I, I go through this all the time, but sourcing is, is very simple. It's research. And there's two types of sourcing. You can either be what I call Goldman Sachs. If you're Goldman Sachs, you basically sit there and you wait for your inbox to pile up and then you basically pick deals from there. And if you really truly are Goldman Sachs, you don't have to do anything else. You already see all the best deals. Does that make sense? Most of the time though, some people think they're Goldman Sachs, but they're not. So they get a bunch of stuff in their inbox, but it's not very good. And so now it's really hard to find really good deals. The other way is to think that you're not Goldman Sachs. You're on the other end of the spectrum and to be knocking on all the doors and to do independent research and to be pitching yourselves. And so, Really, it's a mix of both of them, right? You have to build up a reputation in order to get things in your inbox, but you have to, so you have to build up your reputation in order to have an inbox that's getting filled, but you have to constantly be out there hitting the pavement, knocking on doors in order to build that reputation. And I, I think a lot of people only do one part of that. I'm a very big proponent of just being scrappy, talking to every founder that you can talk to, 
doing research in areas that you think are interesting and, and literally doing the hard work it takes to figure out who the founders of those companies are and reaching out to them cold, right? So I do this very frequently, which is I find founders that I don't know and I either LinkedIn message them, I find a warm intro, but essentially I have no idea who they are. And I just know that they're working in something that is interesting, they're Asian American. And so I just reach out. And I think a lot of my friends are annoyed at me because I've always asked for intros, but it, they get paid in other ways through my connections. <laughs> so it, it usually evens itself out, but yeah. So when you ask me like, how do I source it's, and it's the same thing with LPs, right? There are a lot of Asian Americans that have been very successful. You've got to do the hard work in order to uh, figure out who they are. And then you've got to go reach out to them. I don't think there's any difference in looking for LPs and looking for founders. I think it's very similar. It just depends on how much time you have and what your bar is, right? So if your bar is really high, then you've got to deep dive. You've got to spend more time in doing the research, but it's pretty straightforward to me. The hardest part of Asian Americans sort of winning deals is, is finding them fast enough. That's really mm -hmm. the hardest part of the process, but doing the research, the other part. Okay. So the other part, this is also like dating in a lot of ways. There are two ways in which you can date. One is, and this is like finding a job as well, but there are two ways that you can sort of find a job. You can either think about the companies that you really want to work for. Think about the companies that you get most excited about and then figure out a way to get a job from those companies. That seems obvious, right? But most people don't actually get jobs that way. Most people get jobs a different way, which is random chance. I ask Abe, hey, I just left Vermilion Ventures. I'm starting to think of something new. You say, hey, my buddy is looking to hire. Or Matt says, hey, I just saw this opportunity while I was walking along the street and they're looking for someone with your skill set. You should apply. Mm -hmm. I don't know any of these companies that you guys looked at. They were not on my top 10 list, but I take these introductions because you guys recommended it and it's really entirely by chance. And when you think about it, even when you go to school and you sort of go to the employment fair, it's like entirely by chance that they are set up there. And so you go talk to the recruiter there. You did not go and do this intensive analysis of all the companies in the space that you're going to join and then think about who the best partners were at those firms and then go and talk to those partners to get a job most people don't do that we mm -hmm. are really just it's like 100 percent by chance that we meet someone by by just telling people that we're looking for a job or that i'm single can you introduce me to someone and then your network goes and sort of does that work for you and it's entirely by chance when you think about it so it's when you think about research, it's like being willing to do the hard work, thinking about it analytically, and then sort of executing. I think most people rely on just chance and luck that they just happen to someone happens to see someone and they, then I think it's, it's really hard because it's not, it's not a replicable, right? If you get lucky with a really good deal, how do you get that good deal again? It's entirely by luck. So your fund Vermilion Ventures invests only in Asian American founders and correct me if I'm wrong on any of this. So I also read that you guys take an index approach where you invest in just many, many companies 
there's this condition that you look for a lead investor with like a good name, but there's a lot of really reputable firms out there. And you're also a generalist fund, so you don't exclude any industries and obviously you do your research. So I guess the first part is, and obviously like you're only doing this strategy because you think it works and it can generate good returns. So you believe in this strategy. So first question is, why do you think this index approach is superior than betting big on like a few winners? And then the second question is, even though you say you're a generalist fund, how do you think about different industries? Because if you invest like $1 million in a Web3 company, sure, that's fine. But then you have $1 million less in the bank to invest in all the other industries. So how do you think about portfolio construction? Those are two very big questions. The first one is, the first question that you had is active management versus passive management or indexing versus active management. I would say two things. The data is already there. We say we're data-driven in terms of a lot of people make data-driven decisions, but they're not. And so for VC, you're seeing that Sequoia's returns have not actually been that great, contrary to popular belief. But you're also seeing that those that have, like, there's all this data out there that that's very succinctly shows. Index approach is way better than a concentrated portfolio. But I would ask you the same thing. In your own 401k, where do you have your money? Is it in the S&P 500 by any chance? If it Something, is, yeah, basically. you also indexed. So you yeah. also agree with this. And why? Because it's data-driven. 85% of professional money managers do not beat the benchmark. 85%. So these are all the people that I'm competing with, all the VCs, they do not even beat the S&P 500. And they have a managed approach. Mm -hmm. So most of the people that tell you that they are successful are not successful. They don't even beat the S&P 500. So it's, it's a data-driven approach. It's a data-driven approach. When I think about venture, we talk a lot about like the power law about how one or two companies in the portfolio end up having outsized returns that actually leads to sort of the success and covers for the failure of the hundreds of other portfolio companies. So for stocks, I'm 100% in the camp of let's, let's bogle head, let's index. I'm curious how that approach changes or how you think about it if, it, if differently for investing in the stages of companies you are looking at. Yeah, so the data shows that, look, you have, let's just give an example. You have a million dollars right? You can invest in 10 companies for a hundred thousand each, or you can invest in 20 companies for $50,000 each. Which one is a better investment strategy? Data shows it's actually the latter, primarily because you have more shots on goal because you don't know whether or not any of those are going to be billion dollar outcomes, but you need to have a billion dollar outcome in your portfolio for you to make money. Does that make sense? So at some point in time, yes, like putting in 25K may not help because your returns are not high enough, right? Like even if you 10X, it's not gonna help you make. So, so there is sort of a fine line there, but having more is actually better than concentration because you cannot miss on the billion dollar outcome. So I give another example in 500 startups, literally in the name, it's 500 startups. That's what they're trying to do. Invest, spray and pray, index. 
but you really truly have to index. So it's really well known that tons of VCs pass on Uber. 500 stars, which is an index, cannot pass on Uber. They're an index, but they pass on Uber. So they essentially became an active management company without knowing it. You have to index. And if you did, you would have done really well. It doesn't matter what else they invested in as long as they invest in Uber. Does that make sense? And the crazy thing, I think, is that I'm truly investing in Asian Americans, right? Yeah. A lot of times people say they're investing in Asian Americans, but they're not. What they're doing is they're investing in Asian Americans that are in specific spaces. If you're an Asian American that is in enterprise SaaS, I will invest in you. If you're not in that, I'm, I'm not going to invest in your company. I'm like, well, are you investing in Asian Americans or not? This is a high quality Asian American. They've got experience. It's in a hot space. Why won't you invest in them? Like that to me is really weird. Can you, just for the listeners, can you hit us with the quick facts on what you told me on Kauai, like the, the benchmarks, the data around investing in Asian American founders? Why invest in Asian Americans? So what I did yeah. was I just looked at every single founder that had a unicorn exit or even a $500 million valuation. I looked at every founder's last name and basically said, what is everyone's ethnic background? Now you'd be like, well, why doesn't someone else do this? It's because the data is actually pretty sobering for minorities, but for Asian Americans, it's actually pretty incredible. 30% of all these unicorn back or unicorn companies have at least one Asian American founder, 30%. So the population of Asians in the United States is 6%. So we are doing really well in tech startups. So the question is, why are we not investing in our own community? That to me is really strange. Who are the investors for all these companies that are doing really well? Are they Asian? Because well, the traditional demographics. <laughs> and so how do we change that? Right? So it's really data driven. We do really well in tech. We should be investing in our own communities. And you know, if I could invest in every single company that is raising, I would, if I had unlimited capital. Bob, I feel like you're at this point in your life. I see it with people like Wookie, Stanley, just kind of like these older Asian American guys, kind of like big brother figures. You have success old. in your career, like seasoned veteran. You, <laughs> you've got like, you definitely have like success. You're still hungry for more success, more accomplishments, but you have a young daughter, you have a family and there's trade-offs to everything. So. How do you think about your career and how do you define success for yourself right now? I think there's a two part question. So I'm going to try to break it up again. You always want to stay hungry in life. I think it's really hard to stay hungry, right? And the way to stay hungry is that you have to have a drive and it's really hard because there's a, there's a fund called, I think prodigy that invests in funds but then they stop investing once they get to a billion dollars in AUM. doesn't matter how well they've done. He just says that, look, the reason why I'm stopping is because you're no longer hungry. When you have a billion dollars in AUM, that means you're getting X amount of fees. That means you're probably involved in some foundation. You're probably sitting on some nonprofit boards. Now you have a house in multiple locations. You've got a yacht. And mm -hmm. so you just don't have the time to focus on making me money. You don't have the time to focus on making me money. So he pulls out his investment once they reach a billion dollars in the U.M. So I don't think any of us 
are in a position, if you make a hundred million dollars right now, what would you do and how would you still be hungry? It's a really hard question to ask. It's almost better for you to stay poor for a very long time in order to reach your maximum output when you're like 65. And then you can go and sort of not be hungry. But think about like Elon Musk. Like he started multiple companies and he's like reinvested all the proceeds into new companies. He's remained poor. He like literally sleeps on other people's, he sleeps in other people's houses. Like he is literally hungry all the time. And that internal drive, I think is really, really difficult. I, I, it's not obvious because a lot of people I know, they no longer, like it, it's, it's hard to replicate success twice. And that's probably something to think about. It's really hard to replicate success twice. A lot of founders I know that have been successful once can never do it again. Yeah. And it's really strange because you're almost saying like, was it by accident and luck that I got successful the first time? Or maybe it was the circumstances. So it's actually really hard to be a second time successful founder. Okay. On the second part with the family, I do think it changes your perspective and it does change your priorities. So for me, one of the reasons why I moved to Kauai is because of my daughter, right? You, you have to leave Manhattan when you have a family, because unless you're super rich, you can't afford a big, big place in Manhattan. And you can live in a small, small place in Manhattan, but that's for you, not for your, your family. If that makes sense, you are making a decision for yourself at the negative outcome for your family and the unless you have a big place and the reason for that is think about all the running around a kid does think about all the walking they do if you live in manhattan you take them to central park once a day for an hour that's like jail versus if you have a big place that you're able to run outside in and out and around right and, and so that's just obvious that unless you have the means you are making a career decision when you say, I want to stay in Manhattan because it's closer to my job. That's just the reality. So for me, a lot of my decisions today are based on, is this going to be to the benefit of my daughter? Even if it's not positive for me, which is really hard a lot of times. But I think at some point in time, you have to switch your mindset and I'm not sure I'm making the right decision. I don't know. That's just the way I think, which is I'm trying to focus on my daughter and her future. But when you think of other great leaders, Nelson Mandela, his children had a terrible experience with him as a father. And he was a great man, but he had a terrible relationship with his kids. They never saw him and they didn't barely had a relationship with him. Right. So I think there is a point, maybe there's a balance here to do great things but I don't want that type of relationship. And, and so th these are decisions in life, right? You've got to think about, yeah. I, I don't think they're obvious, which is if you're doing great things, will having a family hold you back? The answer is absolutely. There's actually data on this, that when you get married, you will have a, you're likely to have a kid, your output is going to be significantly less. And mm. it's not mean to say, it's just, it's obvious, right? You can't go home and be a bachelor and code all night anymore. Why? 
because you have a crying baby. You have a significant other who wants to hang out. When you're a bachelor, guess what you can do? Code all night. It's simply right. I mean, this is just about yeah. time spent. Now, will you make better? There's a difference between output and like better decisions. Now that you have a significant other, if you're an idiot, you might make better decisions in life. So th there's positive outcomes here, right? But there is decrease in output. So you've said before that if you remained at your previous role when you were working at a family office, you had this really strong worry that one day a bus would run over, run you over, and then your tombstone would say, Bob Wu helped really rich people get richer. Now you've got your own fund. You invest only in Asian Americans. You're trying to build the Asian American community. You also have committed to donate 50% of carry to Asian American nonprofits. I'm wondering, what would you like your tombstone to say? Well, it's so, so absolutely. I think everyone should go through that, like write down what you want your tombstone to say, and then you can figure out whether or not your career trajectory and what you're working on day to day is moving in that direction. If it's not, then you probably should make some changes. And so for me, if I get run over by a bus today, I will feel much better that I am doing things to change our community for the better, right? And so I think on my tombstone, and this is now that I have a kid, you just want it to say, for me, it's really simple, right? You want to be a good father. You want to be a good husband, but you also want to have lived a life worth living. I think my tombstone would be very simple in that it was, you take nothing when you die, except what you give to others, right? Whether it's education, whether it's stories, whether it's wisdom or, or money, but you, you can't take anything with you. So as long as I leave the world in a better place than before, before when I started, that is probably the most important thing that I want to be on my tombstone. But I think the other thing on your tombstone is that you want people to show up. I think that's really important. And it's not obvious. Uh, it's not obvious that people will show up to your tombstone or to your funeral. It's something to think about in life. It, it's it, even if, yeah, it's not obvious that people will show up. And, and I'll, I'll give you another example, which is when you get married, the wedding planner will tell you that 50% of the people that you invite to your wedding will not show up, which when you think about it, is crazy. You're like, this is one of the most important days of my life. Important days of your life. And you have this short list of people that you've invited. And so you've thought about this. So you've, you've thought about this for a very long time and you have been selected as a lucky winner. And then they turn you down. And that's 50%. If they're not going to show up to your wedding, why would they show up to your funeral? Right? Like it's almost the same thing. It's an important part of your life. If they only show up to your funeral and not to your wedding, are they really a good friend? Like that seems really weird. Now, I'm only going to show up if you die, but for your happy shit, I'm not going to show up. 50% of the people will not show up for a variety of reasons, but you want people to show up. And the only way people will show up is if you've actually made a change in their life, right? You've been yourself. You've been a real human being that has cared for your fellow you know, person, and you've gone out of your way 
to be there in a time of need and you've supported them. And if you've done that, you can feel good. But I think that's to your tombstone question. What do I want it to be written? You know, really simply good father, good husband, and made the world a better place than when I left it. And nothing, I'm not here for legacy, I guess, is my question, is my answer. I'm not here mm -hmm. for legacy. But what I don't want to do, like I said, is make just help rich people get richer. Like that is not the end goal, even though my background is in finance, right? Inherently, it is to help people get richer. Like that is my job, but hopefully I can put it in the right direction. And what, what, what I'm doing with the fund is actually a Trojan horse. I actually think we're going to make people richer, both on the founder side and on the LP side, but it's a Trojan horse because people are investing to make money, but then they build community inadvertently because they have to show up to these events and talk to each other. And the idea is that you, they gain more out of that than the money they make. Awesome. Yeah. Well said. Well, Bob, it's clear that you're living a very connected, authentic life. And I can probably speak for both Abe and I that just from this conversation, we're probably going to spend the rest of the day thinking about our identity, being Asian Americans. And we're probably thinking about what it means to be Asian American in a different way after this conversation. So just want to thank you for coming on the podcast and really appreciate it.